Hey everyone, this is Risky Business and I'm Patrick Gray and sorry we're a day late. Uh, Adam and I were supposed to record the news yesterday but he wound up having to deal with a medical issue. Uh, You don't need to worry, he basically just had a blood nose that wasn't stopping so he had to go to a doctor and have it it checked out and... You know, he turned up drenched in blood, so they're like, you have to go to the ER. And then he had to sit around for hours, and by the time he got out of there, it was super late. Uh, So we missed our recording window, uh, and now he's resting up. He's actually on vacation in the US right now, too, so um, it wasn't the best start to his holiday, unfortunately. But um, hope you're feeling better, mate, if you're listening. Uh, And yeah, Dmitry Alperovich is going to fill in this week, so we'll be talking through all the week's security news with him in just a moment. Uh, For those of you who don't know Dmitry, he co-founded CrowdStrike, but these days he runs a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Silverado Policy Accelerator. And he also serves on the U.S. government's Cyber Safety Review Board, which is uh, super relevant to this week's news discussion, as you'll hear in a moment. This week's show is brought to you by Panther. Uh, They're a seam platform that can handle gargantuan volumes of high-velocity logs. They're one of these newfangled and modern detection-as-code thingies. And uh, Ken Weston from Panther is joining us uh, to do a chat about seam stuff in this week's sponsor interview. Uh, Really, it's just a discussion about trends in seam. uh, And of course, they're going to plug the fact that they're now able to feed your existing seam if you don't want to rip and replace. But they'll do all of the first stage filtering and uh, detections and whatnot. So, you know, you can use it in concert with your existing seam and wind up saving a bundle of money. Uh, So that's a fun chat and it's coming up after this week's news segment, which starts now. And uh, Dimitri, it turns out the people responsible for the ransomware attacks against MGM and Caesars, uh, they're likely youths of a similar stripe to Lapsus. Uh, So yeah, those type of kids are now getting in league with Russian ransomware gangs. This feels like something we absolutely don't need. Uh, Now, you worked on the CSRB report into uh, Lapsus and Lapsus-style attacks. Um, I'm sure you'd agree this is a worrying development. It is. And in fact, when we started the Lapsus review at the Cyber Safety Review Board, the CSRB, earlier this year, uh, we very quickly, almost I think on the on the first day of our investigation, of our review, realized that this was a much bigger problem, that there were groups of teenagers, predominantly in Western countries, that were doing the very similar things to Lapsus. And in fact, there were loose connections between these groups. They were getting radicalized in the same places. And in this case with MGM, the group that uh, everyone believes is responsible, the Scattered Spider group, uh, appears to be in a similar vein of Western teenagers that are really, really good at social engineering. This has really been the big revelations in our review at CSRB is that these groups, whether it's Lapsus or Scattered Spider or about half a dozen other groups that we looked at during our review, many of them don't have great technical skills. Most of them don't build malware. Um, They use off-the-land tools, but what they're really, really good at is calling people up and social engineering them on the phone, whether it's IT help desks, whether it's uh, business process outsourcers, getting them to reset their multi-factor authentication, convincing uh, people uh, in the malls and telcos to uh, do SIM swapping attacks to get the two-factor code to the new, new phone numbers. And with those techniques, you can get pretty much into any company. So it's really not surprising that this happened to MGM. Very unfortunate, of course, but there's been literally hundreds of victims that have fallen to the same types of attacks uh, over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, now I remember when we talked about uh, Lapsus in the past on this show, you know, it, it was very clear that Lapsus was just a tiny little offshoot of something bigger, which is what we called a vibe, right? Like <laughs> Lapsus is a vibe. And AJ Vicens over at Cyberscoop has probably the best story, I think, on on all of this um, this week where I think he was at a Sentinel One conference and they did like a small briefing uh, for some... Yeah, they did. They did a small briefing for some um, journalists, and he was there. And it looks like a lot of this stems from an online community called uh, the Com. I actually asked uh, AJ to to just give us some thoughts on what he learned there, and here's what he said: The people behind the Caesars and MGM hacks were actually probably kids or people in their early twenties who come out of this group called the Com, which is actually an ecosystem of a bunch of splinter groups of cliques and gangs and others who sort of organize real-world violence, like shootings, throwing bricks through windows, attacking people, but other things too, like sim swapping, swatting, and cyber intrusions. These kids are getting better at penetrating large corporations. Uh, Think of Lapsus and all the damage they did. And they're becoming more and more consequential in the real world. Researchers say it's becoming clear that these kids and young adults are working with or acting as initial access brokers with ransomware gangs and, um, you know, super disturbing development. And the MGM and Caesars situation only sort of highlights where this is all headed. So, I mean, this is a really fascinating development where you've now got presumably Western, you know, American and British teenagers to, you know, like 17 to 20, basically, who are now in league with with ransomware crews based out of Russia. So, so many feelings here. One is I think they're going to get caught. Like I'd be very surprised if, you know, the FBI and uh, authorities in, in, in the UK don't, you know, aren't parked outside their houses now, you know, logging their movements and correlating them against sessions and, you know, preparing evidence. That's one thing that strikes me. Um, but there's, but you know, you actually said something there that I want to push back on a little bit, which is that oh, they're not known for having amazing technical skills. So first of all, that warning that we spoke about on the show a few weeks ago that came out of Okta that said, uh, that talked about socially engineering a help desk to reset MFA on like super admin. Uh, uh, accounts in Okta uh, and then, you know, doing uh, malicious IDP federation. Like it turns out that that was these guys, right? And I I happened to speak to someone who uh, had a front row seat for the response at Caesars. And they're, you know, the way that they tell it, Dimitri, these attackers are quite technical and are really quite good and really know what they they're doing so they they had issues where like their patch management solutions were turned against them and it was the same trick used at caesars so that was a mfa reset on a global admin because they were azure they're an azure shop and then they used that global admin to then pivot you know we saw the russians in SolarWinds go from on-prem into cloud. In this case, uh, they've gone the other way around. So they've got the uh, global admin account in Azure and then pivoted to on-prem uh, and deployed ransomware from there. So, yeah, I, I don't let, know. Let that me it's... clarify a little bit what I sure. meant. So what I meant was that they don't use exploits. They don't find zero days. They don't write their own malware. They rely on living off the land tools. And you're right that some of these groups are really, really good sysadmins, right? They know the ins and outs of Windows and Active Directory and they can move really, really quickly using um, the credentials that they had been able to acquire. But that's, that's where hacking thing. came from, you know, like exploits and buffer overflows and stuff. I mean, all that jazz came later. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, so you know, if you look back in the 90s where you're kind yeah. of using Unix tools, absolutely. But, you know, 
things have evolved since then and to find a zero day let's say in an iphone or even in a windows kernel these days takes a lot of capabilities that w is way beyond just learning you know windows commands so yeah. it's a, it's another level uh, of, of sophistication that a lot of these nation state actors obviously have and my only point was that with these guys and, and some of them have no technical skills at all depending on the group in this case uh obviously with scattered spiders that is not the case um, but my point, overall point was that you don't even need in many of these cases to have technical skills as long as you're really good on the phone and can sweet talk your way into an IT help desk. Yeah, I don't know though, because like it's what they did after that point that I found really interesting, right? And just the, you know, in talking to who I spoke to, the thing that came across was just how good they were at getting to know an environment. And being able to move around in it um, really in a really slippery way, right? So they were going hand to hand um, uh, with with these guys for a while, and there there has been, you know, we've seen a lot of confusion around the attribution. You know, is this scattered spider? Is it Alfie? Is it this or is it that? And it really does seem that a lot of this is just this, um, you know, this amorphous sort of online community of like psychopathic well, teams. What, what, right? what this appears to be is actually much more straightforward, right? So Black Cat or Alfie is this believed to be Russian ransomware group that, that provides no, ransomware. No, but I'm talking about the attribution to the people who, who did the initial entry, right? Like scattered spider might not be just one thing, I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, what, what usually happens with these groups, and, and we're not sure, of course, what happened at MGM, is that um, they often buy access, right? So they go to these identity brokers and they uh, acquire credentials um, that they can use. And then they also use social engineering attacks to reset credentials once they're inside and um, elevate them to, to get admin level. But what, what, what seems to have happened with Alf V uh, or Black Cat is that you know, they just provide ransomware as a service so you can go to them, sign up as an affiliate, as is the case with many of these groups, right, and get the malware and start using it and they'll provide all the infrastructure to negotiate ransomware and everything else. So it appears that Scattered Spider was an affiliate uh, of uh, Alpha Sure, sure. What, I, what I'm getting at, though, is that it wasn't a one-to-one -one overlap in the people who did Caesars versus MGM. It appears that like maybe there's some common membership, right? But it's not just one group. And that's why I keep coming back to this idea that it's a vibe. Okay, so when you guys released the CSRB report into Lapsus, you know, uh, I can't remember. Did we get you on to talk about that? Oh, no, we got Heather Adkins on. No, yeah, um, you had Heather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got Heather Adkins on, on to talk about that. And I described that report as a must read for every CISO, right? And staggeringly though, and, and I really want to talk about this. You, you've told me um, that some people have been critical of CSRB's decision to look at lapses. I just find that bizarre. I think that report was just sensational. And what we've seen in Las Vegas over the last month kind of proves it, right? Like why, why on earth were people critical of the, the board's decision to pick up lapses as a, as, a, as a topic to examine? Well, this has been the case since the board really began that every time we, we do a report, we've done two of these uh, so far, Log4j and Lapsus. The immediate question is, well, when are you going to do solar winds and why haven't you done solar winds? This attack that's now, you know, what, almost four, four years old? Um, well, at this because point. Mandiant did solar winds, right? Like, uh, but, uh, you know, there's specific questions. Why aren't you doing a specific intrusion? Why are you looking at a group of threat actors? Why are you looking at a particular vulnerability? And A, most people don't seem to appreciate that we don't, as a board, don't actually pick what to review, 
we get assigned by the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alan Mayorkas, and the, the head of CISA, Jen Easterly. Um, those taskings, we, we don't have a right to refuse. We don't have the right uh, to say, hey, we want to work on something else. Um, so that's point number one. But point number two is actually, I, I do agree, and I think most of the board agrees, with the decision to do Log4j at the time um, that had the potential to be one of the most uh, uh, significant vulnerabilities we've seen in, in a while. Um, and at the intersection of this interesting topic of open source software, and there were questions of who discovered it, and was there you know, a Chinese nexus to it, which we ultimately uh, discovered that was not, um, in terms of usage of that vulnerability by a nation state before public. This is like the, the COVID-19 origin uh, investigation, yeah. but computer version. <laughs> yeah, and then with lapses, you know, here you have, and again, the review was not just about lapses, it was lapses and these related groups, yeah. uh, to include Scattered Spider, is that these are really, really successful operators. You have teenagers that can break into companies like Microsoft and Uber and you know, NVIDIA and so many uh, others that have really good security teams and spend a lot of money on security. And I thought it was really important, and I think the rest of the board felt it was really important to look at how are these guys being successful, why, and what can we do from a recommendations perspective, which is, after all, the mission of CSRB to do the lessons learned from these significant attacks to figure out how we can improve security across the entire ecosystem. And now we've been tasked with looking at a specific incident, of course, which is the Microsoft Exchange um, hack that was revealed uh, earlier this summer. So that review is kicking off. Um, so uh, we, we, we do both types of individual investigations or individual reviews, I should say, into specific incidents, but also at these broader trends. And I think both are important. Yeah, no, I mean, I just find it bizarre that anyone would think that that was a bad one to do, you know, because as I say, at the time, we were we were all about it. And, um, you know, after I spoke to you about that, I went and asked some journalists I know, I'm like, is that for real? Like, are people actually criticising them for that? And they said, yes. <laughs> just anyway, it's just weird that I am definitely out of step with the rest of <laughs> the um, commentariat on that, apparently. Um, I guess one thing that's probably worth uh, uh, reiterating is that, Right now, it would be a very good idea to go and change your directory setup, whether you're using Azure AD or you're using Okta, it would be a very good idea to go and remove your help desk's ability to reset MFA on those accounts. I mean, that is something very simple you can do. I mean, that's not necessarily going to stop this threat actor, right? That's not necessarily going to stop them. But that is just such a slam dunk way for them to insta own you. Like I think it would just—it's just very simple and good advice to go and do that um, right now. And, and would, also, you, would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And also, as we recommend in our review, you should look at other ways to do MFA. So, as much as possible, get off phone-based um, SMS-based authentication because it's so easy to to do SIM swapping. Um, uh, we know that uh, push-based methods have their problems as well uh, because of the push DDoS effectively, or push DOS, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, push spam, right? Yeah. yeah. Push flooding or whatever they call it. Exactly. Um, and really start looking at hardware-based tokens that um, um, are the way to go to to make sure that it's much, much harder to, to do these types of social engineering attacks. I mean, but then they're, they're no good, right, if your help desk can reset the FIDO2 hardware authenticator that your super admin is using, right? If yeah. someone can just trick the you know help desk, and that's the thing, you know, you, you've... 
you're only ever as strong as your reset procedures and you need to actually put a little bit of thought into, okay, well, we can't... Like one of one idea that I had was you need a different super admin uh, whose only role is to reset MFA on the primary wow. super admin and you take a FIDO2 key for that one and you stick it in a safe well, somewhere. Well, you know? what really happens here, and we looked at the, the subset of this problem actually when we looked at the SIM swapping issue because that was a big chunk of our review. How do you make it harder to do SIM swaps? And there's a range of ways in which these groups do that with the telcos. One way is to obviously social engineer someone at the mall the, the teenager that's working at the mall for one of these resellers and get them to, to re- reset the, the, the phone number. Uh, but there are many others. And, you know, there's a legitimate SIM swapping case. In fact, the vast majority of SIM swaps, as we heard from the telcos when we did our review, are completely legitimate because someone loses their phone. Oftentimes they're overseas. They need, you know, um, to get a new car, a SIM card and, um, Uh, and activate it and how do you do that particularly if they may not have their credentials with them so they may you you know you may be able to get them on a video call and ask them to show you your passport of course passports and other documents can be faked as well it's a really really hard problem Um, even if you just look at the telcos in in smaller organizations where you should know what people look like it may be a little bit easier but again with the ai techniques and ability to modify video that's going to be even harder going forward yeah, no, 100%. And I think our joke a couple of weeks ago was to reset the uh, password or, you know, MFA on a super admin account. Uh, the admin needs to present themselves to an Okta office for DNA sequencing, right? Like that's probably one of the only things that's going to that's gonna fix this. But look, we've dropped a bunch of links in uh, into the show notes this week so uh, people can go have a read about this. But look, Honestly, it's just a fascinating case. Like uh, the reason I said that that lapsus report from CSIB was a must read is because of the types of TTPs uh, they were using, like really innovative stuff and kind of nasty as well, and real no limits hacking. Um, so yeah, yeah, drop into the the show notes and have a look through. Oh, one thing I wanted to get your opinion on earlier, I said I suspect that these guys are going to get caught. And I mean, by that, I mean the American and, and presumably British affiliates. Is that your feeling as well? Because I can't imagine, you know, so, so often these groups uh, or the affiliates themselves are based in Russia and, you know, the FBI can't do anything. And now there's an opportunity to actually put some cuffs on someone. I, I just can't see it not happening. Well, yes and no. Um, again, when we looked at this at, C- at CSRB, when we conducted our review, it's often very easy to catch these guys because their OPSEC is just terrible. But what happens is that a lot of them are teenagers. They're juveniles. So they literally get arrested, let go, and we've been briefed on cases where literally 24 hours after leaving jail, the guy's logging back into Telegram or Discord channel and saying, I'm I, back. I know, the one, I know the one you're talking about. He's the Brit- British one. But that guy, you know, he's not neurotypical, let's just say that. He's in a, he's in a special school for uh, people who have... Um, quite severe autism and maybe, you know, not the best example of, of how this might play out, right, with, with, with all of them. But, he, you know, that was clearly that guy had a compulsion. I know, but, but this happens a bunch of times and they recruit specifically juveniles for this very purpose because they know that they can slide out of the uh, justice system and get off basically scot-free or maybe serve a few months. So that's a real issue that we heard from uh, Justice Department and and other law enforcement in our review that what do you do about these juveniles that, you know, made a mistake, got tied up, uh, up in these communities and now can't get out of it. 
Yeah, this guy was hacking from a fire stick plugged into his like hotel TV room when he was, I think he was supposed to be like in custody or something. Just absolutely yeah. crazy. But um, but one yeah. more point I want to make, and, and you kind of mentioned this, that these guys are not only doing intrusions, are not only doing these ransomware types of operations, but increasingly are using physical violence, particularly when it comes to SIM swapping uh, and um, other types of operations. We've heard briefs on how they hire uh, local gangs like MS-13 uh, to intimidate people um, that are part of the gang, that uh, they want them to, to do uh, particular actions. And what I fear is that right now, the way they get into these companies is by social engineering, calling up help desk, you know, sweet-talking their way in. What happens when they start using violence to actually get these people inside companies or inside of these third-party business process outsources to actually do this because either they're being bribed or someone actually puts a gun to their head and uh, and asks them to do this, right? So that may be coming yeah. given the direction that this is going into. Well, that's cheery. I mean, when I think about these types of groups, I think that they do, they are more representative of like the cyber equivalent of street gangs. You know, when you look at the, the Russian ransomware organizations, they're a little bit more like mafia organizations, I guess. And, um, you know, these guys very much more like a disorganized street street gang, uh, just ruthless and do whatever it takes. Um, but look, let's move on. And uh, we've got a story here from the record written by Alexander Martin, which has really been doing the rounds. And I think people need to read beyond the headline on this one. There's a, a logistics firm in the UK called KNP Logistics, uh, which has... Um, gone insolvent basically and uh, made 730 people uh, redundant and this is being uh, this is because they had a ransomware attack apparently but if you read the story and we've seen almost the exact same story pop up before where a company is about to go under they're trying to seek emergency investment then they get ransomware and then the whole thing falls over and it looks like that's what's happened in this case the company was in dire straits and then got ransomware, and that was enough to tip them over the edge and, and ensure that nobody invested to bail out the company. Yeah, and we don't know whether they were doomed um, to, to go out of business to begin with and ransomware or no ransomware. That could have happened either way, right, in this particular well, we environment. Well, do, we, do, we do have comments from the administrator who's been brought in to wind up the company along the lines of, well, they were in quite a lot of trouble, you know. So I think we can read the tea leaves a little bit there. Yeah. And particularly, you know, they were saying that they were looking for new investors and obviously the ransomware attack kind of shut that process down. But let's be honest, in this environment, looking for new investors is not necessarily an easy process to begin with. But look, this happens often, not in the sense of going out of business, but having significant real world effects from ransomware group. And I'll tell you, I also serve on something called the Homeland Security Advisory Council, which is part of um, DHS that advises the sector on various issues. And earlier this year, I led a study group, uh, a task force to look at supply chain issues. And we went out to port of a, a, a LA Long Beach and looked at issues there. Um, and in part, what we looked at also is what happened, if you recall, uh, with the big uh, backlog of ships that were uh, um, sitting outside of that port for literally months uh, back in 2021, spring of 2021, having really cascading effects across the entire economy. And what we found is that there were a number of factors that were contributing to all of this, but one of them was actually a ransomware attack against one of the big logistics companies there that was not able to process shipments out of the port, move them out, move them out, and they kept stockpiling. So it was not the contributing factor, but it was one of um, that actually had broad impacts on the overall U.S. economy. 
I think the point you're making is it doesn't matter whether or not the ransomware is directly responsible for this group going out of business. It just, it, it certainly didn't help. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, we've got the state uh, uh, healthcare, the universal healthcare system in the Philippines, the government org that runs that uh, is struggling to recover from a ransomware so uh, ransomware attack. So, I mean, that's another example of one. Uh, and also Bermuda uh, having some trouble, Dimitri. Well, it's Bermuda, and before that it was Martinique and Trinidad and Tobago, Dominican Republic, and of course Costa Rica that you've talked about on the show. So you now seem to have this trend of ransomware groups going after governments. Specific, well, and they go after specific regions. So we saw them do a tour through the Pacific. Um, I think that was like, what, earlier this year and last year as well. So I think it, it does seem to be a thing, doesn't it, where they decide to focus on a region, on a specific region that doesn't necessarily have a great response capability and then eventually allies come in to help, maybe, um, you know, offer some responders and whatever, and then they move on to the next region, which, I mean, you know, it's diabolical, but it seems smart. It is. And, you know, I was thinking back to a year ago, the White House and, and Newberger, the White House um, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, organized this counter ransomware initiative that includes, I believe, about 30 different nations. And Australia is actually one of the leaders in that group to look at ways that countries and law enforcement agencies can collaborate against these ransomware groups. And I imagine that they're getting a bunch of new uh, countries that are asking to join post all of these different hacks that have been taking place. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Now, the Ukrainians have uh, done a report um, into a bunch of stuff. So there was one that came out of the Ukrainian CERT. Um, and that was pretty interesting, just looking at the way Russian attacks against Ukraine have changed um, over the years. So there's less focus on malware, more focus on phishing and whatever. I'll just link through to that and people can find it. It is interesting. But we're also seeing ru- the Russians target Ukrainian organizations that are investigating war crimes uh, by the Russians. And, you know, this comes on the heels of uh, reports that the International Criminal Court had a cyber incident that, you know, Russia was presumably behind. So a few pieces sort of falling into place here. Yeah. And I, I actually found the report from uh, Victor Zora, who runs the Ukrainian CERT, quite interesting. Uh, he talked about a couple of different trends. One of them, obviously, is Russians going after investigations of war criminals, which is to be expected. Um, they want to know what the progress is, what the evidence is, you know, if they're uh, potentially who do they who do they need to give new identities to etc or or witnesses that they can try to intimidate or worse right um, that can mm. testify against them uh, but they're also talking about this move they're saying a shift that they've been seeing this year uh, of um, targeting away from government military and critical infrastructure to doing more law enforcement private businesses and media that I think is very interesting somewhat I think maybe timing related because we know that the kinetic campaign against the Ukrainian grid pretty much stopped after the end of winter and is now starting again literally in the last week or so so we may see a resumption of the cyber activity as well where they were waiting out the summer and now they want to try to destroy the grid again uh, in anticipation of a cold winter uh, another war crime by the way um some of it may be uh, actually trying to get quick wins. Um, the tempo operations is, is so high that um, uh, it might be harder to break into these hardened targets like military targets. And um, if there's pressure on them to produce effects, 
that uh, they're going to try to pick uh, targets that are much easier, where they can potentially buy access or leverage previous accesses um, and so forth. Um, and, and in fact, the report says that the severity of these intrusions is going down as well. Uh, but in some ways, uh, it's interesting because the speed of um, XFIL is uh quite good. Um, in, in many cases, they're saying that it takes these actors 30 minutes from entry to exfil, uh, which is yeah. really, really remarkable. Well, and they're going back and they're hitting places that they've uh, got access to. So they're, they're going back, r- doing new exfil, and then shoring up their persistence. And it just seems like, yeah, they're getting a little bit more organized in their day-to-day operations. But it ain't all beer and Skittles in Russia Dimitri, because it looks like uh, their version um, of like these global reservation systems for, for flight information. So the Russian equivalent to like Amadeus and Sabre, which is apparently called Serena Travel. Uh, apparently they got popped and something like 665 million flight records over 16 years uh, have been stolen. So that's information on 664 million flights, which I'm guessing is going to include, you know, passenger manifests and whatnot. Uh, That's been stolen and the people who did it are offering to share it with, you know, anyone who has a good reason to have it. Um, You know, we know how valuable this sort of information is to investigators. And, you know, we've like, it's just such an advantage for the West having access into things like Amadeus and Sabre. And we've seen adversary nations targeting those systems as well. So we know this stuff is valuable. I think this is probably a slightly bigger deal. The fact that I have to include a link from Yahoo News discussing this, which was, it's, is a syndicated piece from the Ukrainian Pravda would suggest that this isn't getting enough attention. Would you agree? Absolutely. In fact, you had Bellingcat come out and say that um, they were looking at a much narrower leak from the system just three years from 2014 to 2017. And that was responsible for over a dozen investigations they had done in Russia uh, on um, on uh, Russians, including pr- uh, presumably some of these GRU assassinations that they have unvea- unveiled, where they were tracking... Uh, uh, folks that were trailing Navalny and uh, flights between Moscow and and, uh, Great Britain for this Kripal attempted assassination. And now actually we have uh, a quote from one of the team members from Navalny's uh, group saying that uh, they're really hoping to get access to this data. So far, these hackers have only released 3 million out of the 665 million records. And uh, I really love this quote. Uh, the guy says, uh, if we can get access to this information, there's enough material there to last us several lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an absolutely amazing source for groups like Bellingcat. And I would be very surprised if they don't wind up getting access to the full kit because it looks like whoever did this is a pro-Ukraine group and um, probably the biggest headache you could cause Russia with this is to give this information to Bellingcat. Like that's a slam dunk, right? Absolutely. And they validated that the data is real. They check some of the flights and they really add up yeah. to known flights. Yeah, that's it. Um, all right. So moving on. And uh, we've had some border checkpoint outages in Canada that are apparently a result of a Russian DDoS. Is that right? Well, it's not clear. There were kiosks and electronic gates at some of the border points in Canada that it was shut down. Uh, not clear whether it was DDoS or not. There was another uh, pro-Kremlin hacktivist DDoS being directed against some Canadian entities early in the week. So some people are trying to tie the two together, but this could actually be yet another ransomware attack that we're seeing in Canada as well with regards to these kiosks. 
Yeah, I mean, I wondered too, like everyone's quick to blame Russia for everything at the moment, but you just look at what's going on between Canada and India at the moment. And in particular, sort of Indian nationalists are very annoyed at Canada. And they're the types, you know, nationalists of all stripes are the types who tend to do those sorts of things, right? When I think back in the day, 20 years ago, it was the Chinese nationalists. They loved a good DDoS. And then, you know, you've got your Russians and your Turks. And, you know, when you, when you annoy nationalists, you get DDoS. Although, That's like a cyber truth. Although we know what happens to these nationalists that get into this, judging by the Chinese example. They uh, get over recruited. 20, over 20 years ago, exactly. They join <laughs> the security services and that happens in Russia as well. Yeah. Now, we did have an interesting spyware story pop up over the last week, which is the iPhone of an Egyptian presidential candidate uh, got hacked with a Oday chain. For the third time. Um, and for the third time, and they had the Predator spyware this time, not Pegasus. Predator spyware dropped on them. Um, you know, I think it's... Is this a good news story where increasingly we're seeing this stuff turn up on high-value targets? You know, like really prominent journalists and presidential candidates and stuff. I mean, you know, it feels like the the target set might be narrowing a bit. Is that good news, Dimitri? Well, I, I wouldn't jump that far. It, it might be that you're right, but of course, we don't know the full set of the victims here. So there could be many, many not so prominent people that have no idea that they've been hacked. Well, that's right. And yeah. Citizens Lab, who actually identified this along with Google Tag, uh, have not been tracking it um, as closely. So um, I, I wouldn't go that far. But, you know, the, the compromise here, you know, again, speaks to the sophistication of these entities. In this case, it was Citrox in Macedonia that was responsible for building Predator. But three zero days, right? The uh, privilege escalation zero day, or remote code execution in Safari. Um, really, really sophisticated stuff. And it just tells you that despite all of the improvements in iOS, and there were Android zero days as well, the Google has patched, these companies are able to uncover them every single time. So uh, I don't think... Uh, uh, anything is stopping them at the moment. I mean, we've seen some Russia-based exploit broking service all over Twitter. This has gone massively viral in infosec circles. Uh, they've been off, they, they reckon they're offering like 20 mil uh, USD for a uh, you know, zero-click iOS exploit chain. To me, that feels a bit like bullshit, but you know, do you think the Russians would have to pay that much because not many people want to work with them? They need to make it that appealing? Did you see this? What did you make of it? I, I did. I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's certainly lots of people still that are working for Russian intelligence services that have significant capabilities. There's lots of domestic contractors working with FSB and GRU and others. So I'm not sure that you can say from that that, uh, you know, they need to buy exploits because they can't find them themselves. Obviously, lots of really um, highly uh, expert people in Russia that have done a lot of exploit developments in the past. So I, I wouldn't jump that far. I mean, far. it didn't feel right to me either. I mean, it feels yeah. like you're skeptical as well, that this seems like maybe a bit of marketing. Yeah. Uh, what I found interesting about this Egyptian case, though, is that um, the Citizen Lab folks believe that the initial compromise was delivered via uh, Sandvine, yeah, a, uh, yeah. that, that's telco-based equipment that did a network injection uh, in, uh, in into the device. So it tells you that uh, there's quite quite likely, if not uh, almost certainly, uh, government involvement there. Yeah. Now, look, we got some research that I don't think anyone has to worry about here, but it's the sort of like academic security research that is just kind of clever enough that you 
kind of have to include it, right? Dan Gooden's written it up, uh, written it up from Ars Technica, and uh, it's it, it's it's called a pixel stealing attack, and it affects GPUs. And the idea is you can steal content from like GPU memory, like so so you can reconstruct images from the GPU. If you are a malicious website, you might be able to like look at another tab or something like that. I mean, I it's real hard to imagine this ever being used in anger, but I still you know, I, I have to admit enjoying work like this. Very, very clever, but as you said, not extremely practical. And as I was diving into the details of this research, they're, they're basically leveraging the fact that GPUs compress data to save memory bandwidth and improve performance. And as a result of that compression, you can infer what the pixels are likely to be. Um, and basically the way this attack works is that you need to take a destination website from which you're trying to steal the pixels, let's say a username that has been entered into a particular website, um, and you need to put it inside an iframe and that destination can deny embedded cross-origin uh, uh, sites. So there are a bunch of restrictions. It also doesn't work in Safari and Firefox because of how these browsers handle things. So really a lot of restrictions from this being able to be used in the real world effectively. But the, the main one is that it takes about 30 minutes to render targeted pixels only with about 97% accuracy. So uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking there's much, much easier ways to steal usernames. Yeah, no, I know, right? Like it is, it is one of the most elaborate ways to skin a cat ever. Yeah, it's it's. You know, Most of the time, you're not even going to get the password because it's going to be masked. It's going to be right? yeah, exactly. It's going to be like a bunch of asterisks. Um, so yeah, completely pointless, but also quite cool, and uh, I dig it. Now, Sisakev, there's now a thousand bugs on it, right? So we've had a bit of a debate, a bit of a back and forth on this show about the virtues of Sisakev because it did get big pretty quick. Um, and we wondered if it would lose its efficacy. What's interesting here is CISA has released some uh, info on it. Um, John Grieg has this right up over at the uh, at the record that we've linked through to. And it looks like bugs on the Kev list get patched quicker, um, like a fair bit quicker. And bugs in internet-facing stuff that are on Kev get patched like really quite a lot faster. So it looks like it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. Um, so good one, CISA. Yeah, you know, most people don't appreciate this, but there's a bunch of inertia inside companies to patch specific systems. You will get businesses, business units that will object to it. You will have IT people saying they always have higher priorities. So for security teams to be able to point at something and, see, uh, and say CISA, um, is focused on these vulnerabilities. They know they're being exploited. You really, really must patch these five um, and you can wait on the other three. I think that's really helpful. Um, and if, if uh, it gets some of these organizations to patch faster, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we have a new record for the year for crypto thefts. Uh, the Hong Kong crypto business Mixon has lost $200 million in crypto assets. I mean, these things are so regular, they're barely even worth talking about at this point. I mean, I think they had, um, you know, they've got like a gajillion dollars, uh, you know, billions uh, in their control. So $200 million, they can absorb the hit. But it's hardly confidence inspiring in the crypto ecosystem, is it? Yeah, but has any of the, this news affected people's uh, desires to invest in crypto? I don't think it's having any effect whatsoever and people are continuing to spend money getting Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other coins. I mean, that stuff survived, but stuff like NFTs, is it essentially that market went to zero? Yeah, but not because of cyber concerns. 
Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It's kind of depressing, but it's a good point. Uh, now, look, a bit of industry news and Cisco has, is, is buying Splunk for $28 billion. And uh, what do you think Cisco's... You know, we don't normally talk about deals uh, in the show, but what do you think Cisco is going to do with Splunk? Are they going to, you know, invest in it and innovate? Uh, probably not, is, is my feeling. Um, or are they just going to, you know, maintain it and, uh, you know, absorb all of those customers into the Cisco Borg cube? Well, this takes me back about two decades when I was working at a email security startup that was competing with a company that uh, Cisco had bought, Ironport. And I can tell you for about two years, they were an absolute menace to us because what Cisco did is they double comped their salespeople to sell Ironport along with their existing solutions. And they saw just a, a boatload of it. Uh, and then after two years, they stopped and all the people left because they were vested and uh, the product pretty much started dying a slow death. So I think they might be a short term spike uh, in Splunk sales. And because, then it'll wither on the vine. Because of bundles yeah. and then it'll wither. Yeah. But, you know, other solutions like Sentinel from Microsoft are giving them really, really good competition these days, too. Dimitri. Thank you so much for stepping in uh, to fill in for Adam. And uh, yeah, it was really fascinating stuff and uh, we'll do it again soon. Sounds great. That was Dmitry Alperovich there with a check of the week's security news. And I've linked through uh, also to a pre-order page in this week's show notes. Uh, it's the Amazon pre-order page for Dmitry's upcoming book, which is called World on the Brink, How America Can Beat China in the Race for the 21st Century. And uh, the book is mostly about how vital it is to deter China from attempting to invade Taiwan. And I've read a few bits of it already, and it's uh, it's great stuff. It's out next year, uh, but you can pre-order it at the link that is in this week's show notes. I've also linked through in the show notes to a podcast Dimitri and I did together. I think that was last week. Uh, it all blurs together uh, at, at a certain point. Uh, but we did a podcast all about Starlink in Ukraine, and uh, that one was published into his feed, and his podcast is called Geopolitics Decanted. Uh, and yeah, that, that recording that we did got a great reception, so I think a bunch of you uh, who listen to Risky Business will also enjoy that one. Adam will be back on deck next week. And uh, for those who have been asking, which has been quite a few of you, yes, uh, Lena Lau will be back in a couple of weeks also. Uh, everyone really enjoyed her contributions to last week's show. And, uh, you know, we hope she'll be back regularly. And uh, she, I think she's coming not next week, but the week after she'll be back. Um, but yeah, in that news segment towards the end, you just heard us talking about Seam and Splunk. And uh, Dimitri mentioned the fact that Splunk has real competition now. And uh, one of those competitors is this week's uh, sponsor, Panther. Ken Weston is the field CISO there. And uh, Panther makes a Seam. And I guess the best way to describe it is it's modern. It's a detection as code type of deal with proper, you know, data infrastructure behind it. It can handle high volume and high velocity logs, and it also won't bankrupt you, which is which is a nice feature. Uh, but this conversation is really about what's changed in Seam over the last few years. And look, usage really has changed. As you'll hear, a lot of Seam deployments, you know, they don't even bother tracking stuff like firewall logs anymore. Uh, Ken is a Seam veteran. And uh, yeah, he joined me for this chat about the state of Seam and what's changed. Well, it's kind of tough right now, I think, with uh, Seam because a lot of people have had bad experiences with it. In a lot of respects, many organizations, I think, see Seam as a four-letter word. Um, you know, my talks, I always ask, like, who loves their Seam? And, you know, I think I had one person raise their hand and, you know, I think there was might have been something wrong with them. Um, did but, you, you did know, you have Barmer. your like Steve Steve Barmer <laughs> moment? I love Seam, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, nobody really loves their sim, which is unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, I think analysts do. Like, once you get it up and running, you know, it's great. Like, you know, I, I spent years at Splunk. I was one of the first security specialists. And, you know, back then it was amazing. Like, I could search all this data and um, it was a lot of fun. But um, back then we were also selling to a lot of corporate entities, right? So we're selling to companies that were maybe selling services and widgets, but they weren't necessarily tech companies themselves. So we're selling mostly into IT departments and um, what's interesting is when I, you know, I spent four years at Splunk, then I spent about three years at um, Elastic where I led security strategy and competitive intelligence, um, doing a lot of like teardowns and things like that. And I was, I started noticing this shift to Sim where it was not just corporate security, it's more developer focused. You start to see a lot of organizations were migrating to cloud, um, started building a lot of custom applications. Uh, and so you sort of saw this uh, observability and security sort of overlapping quite a bit. Um, and that really changed the demands for SIM. Um, there was a lot more demand for being able to run searches faster, uh, being able to leverage automation and things like that as well. Um, it's it's strange to think that Sim is actually old enough to drink now. It's like, what, 22 years old, I think, was when ArcSight actually came onto the market in the first place. Um, so when I came to Panther, I was looking at, like, what data people are ingesting? Like, what is it? Uh, what's different here? And I saw a real big difference was it was more on the DevOps side. We're bringing in uh, maybe Okta. We're bringing in GitHub logs, which is very strange, I think, for Sim. Um, and we're also bringing a lot of cloud uh, trail logs, things like that that might be really expensive to bring into some of the more traditional SIM platforms, or I kind of mm. refer to them now as legacy SIMs. Um, and so you you have a higher volume of logs, you have a higher velocity of logs. Uh, you also have more demands, again, for um, near real-time detections, automated response, and things like that. So that's what I've really seen change. Um, and then so it's, built it's, it's, less about, it's less about events on Windows networks and more about what's happening in custom applications for at least for at least a subset of the market. Yeah, exactly. I was shocked when I was looking at it and like nobody was bringing in firewall locks, like no, no Palo Alto or anything like that. And I was like, why the heck is that? And I looked at it and all of our customers were really tech companies. They're highly distributed. They really didn't need uh, some of these firewalls, right? That just, mm. it didn't actually uh, map to their network architecture and the things that they were trying to protect. So um, are they, are they but, doing stuff like um, uh, bringing in like Zeek instead? Yeah, there was a, a lot of Zeke, um, but I think one of the top lo log sources we had was custom. Um, so yeah. we actually had well, a I mean, I was actually going to ask you about that because when, you know one of the advantages when you're doing your own applications is you can you can you can get them to log whatever you want, right? And yep. um, you know if you've got a decent seam platform, you can pump them into that and and know what you need to know, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, exactly. We make it very easy to, you can just actually drag and drop a, a log sample and it'll actually infer a schema for you right there. So make it really easy to, you know, onboard custom log sources. So um, there's that. And then uh, GitHub was interesting to me. Um, so I actually built a workshop around it because I was curious, like what sort of threats that people were facing. Yeah. I was going to, um, I was going to ask on that because you mentioned that it's weird and it is weird, but I'm guessing there's, a, and, and always when, when you hear about something like this, it's like, well, that's strange. And then someone gives you a really good reason. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, it sort of made sense. If you look at like uh, some of the threat actors, like we saw like Lapsus, um, you know, that they, they were. Um, good, trying to get into um, compromising Okta, and then they would get into GitHub repositories, and they would be looking in, you know, private repos for any sort of uh, secrets or keys. You also had a Lazarus, who, who are uh, the North Korean um, APT actors. 
that were also targeting developers and they were actually using social engineering um, and inviting people to um, these sort of private GitHub repos with the goal of getting them to download this code and execute it. And then it had uh, malicious um, dependencies. So it would actually be downloading this malicious code from these other servers. Again, they were targeting developers. So then they get into the developer system and then they can hopefully compromise, you know, again, get uh, other GitHub repos for that company. Um, they were targeting mostly like uh, gambling companies, uh, cybersecurity entities, um, as well as a lot of cryptocurrency startups as well. And we've actually just seen it's been very successful for North Korea. I think they were trying to sell almost like $40 million worth of cryptocurrency recently. Yeah, I mean, it's um, staggering how much they've made out of that. I do wonder how successful they've been in actually turning the stolen crypto into um, cash. But also, if they were having too much trouble doing that, they wouldn't be stealing it in the first place. So they must be finding a way. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's one thing I see about cryptocurrency is that it makes uh, money laundering a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think that's an open question, given how good like blockchain analysis has got these days. Yeah. I think that used to be true. Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe shifting to Monero or something. That's what they're going to start uh, requesting. <laughs> so, are people de-emphasizing the sort of you know on-prem networks part of Seam, or is it just that these days? doing seem for that sort of environment is just kind of well understood and old hat and you can stand up a program pretty easily because you know i think these days you know standing up a seam program to monitor an on-prem windows network it's not some crazy art meets science thing anymore it's a pretty well understood um uh program to stand up so is that why now people are sort of extending it out into this area or i, or I guess it's just because more company assets are uh now devopsy you know, custom. Yeah, I, I kind of blame the pandemic for it a lot. I mean, there was, there was a shift. There's always been a shift to cloud, right? And I think that mm -hmm. really accelerated during the pandemic. Um, you 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 became a cloud first company, whether you liked it or not. Um, well, well, I'd like to believe you, but I think we really became VPN first companies initially, which was quite depressing. But yeah, I I, yeah. I do know what you mean. Yeah, uh, but then you know, I think with that too, there's been a lot more like development to like tech development where. It is every company now is a tech company at, at some point, whether they like it or not. They're they're building custom application, custom scripts, particularly as you start to migrate to the cloud. Um, you may just have a shared GitHub repository of scripts that you use for automating processes and things like that. So there's been much more of a, a dev focus. And I kind of refer to this as this sort of shift left mentality when it comes to SIM, where again, we're not just you know deploying into corporate environments. Um, as you said, a lot of like on-prem environments, that's kind of well and understood. But I think challenge that a lot of people had is when they did the shift to cloud, there is an increase in volume uh, when it comes to logs. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to bring in CloudTrail logs from AWS. Um, it can be incredibly expensive if you have um, you know, your pricing based on data ingest, um, especially if you want to have uh, long-term uh, data retention. So most SIMs that have 30, 60, if you're lucky, maybe 90 days. Um, one thing that we offer is uh, one year of searchable um, data. So that's uh, kind of a big differentiator, um, but just the way we're much more efficient with how we leverage our security data lake. Um, so we're able to save a lot of costs by doing that. Um, and also, I think a lot of organizations are facing that, just you know, trying to bring all these SaaS apps in, trying to bring in uh, cloud applications, um, everything from Zoom, they all generate logs. Um, and mm. it's, uh, it's higher volume of logs than I think they were ever dealing with before. Um, and that sort of 
like scale, the economy of scale doesn't really um, map well when you're used to the on-prem environment where maybe you're bringing in, um, you know, maybe 100 gigabytes a day of data. When all of a sudden I was just talking to a customer today and they're bringing in like a a couple of petabytes of data per month, right? So it can be, yeah, it can grow exponentially and it can that'd become be a real a, problem. That'd be a hell of a Splunk bill, that one. Yeah, 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 you're right. It could be. I'm sure they. I'm sure they probably <laughs> offer some some deep discounts and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah you ask them. You ask them for a quote, yeah. and they're like, "Sorry, our our you know standard computers can't display a number that large." Can we finance this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, look. Speaking of the incumbents, right? They're dug in pretty good. I gotta I gotta admit to being surprised that they've managed to hang around and be as dominant for as long as they have been. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons I find, you know, what Panther's doing so interesting because we've seen a lot of people kind of innovate around seam helpers and things like that for Splunk, but not so much the ground up rebuild, right? Which is what you guys are, are trying to do. I mean, we've seen Elastic do some stuff and, you know, you yeah. yourself used to work there, but what, what, why is it that the incumbents have just been able to stay so dominant for so long? Even when, like, everybody knows that they're, with Splunk in particular, the amount they charge is just taking the piss, right? And everyone keeps paying paying the Splunk tax. Why, why is it, do you think? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't want, want to say it's a ransomware model, but it, it kind of is a little <laughs> bit. Like, um, and it's it's a good thing because it's the old, know, the old uh, semantic model of, uh, you know, it's it's the cancer that once it gets into the enterprise, it's very difficult to cut out. Well, that means a huge kudos to Splunk because they were able to get and show people how they can get value out of their data. Like a lot of times, you know, people didn't realize, you know, how much value they could actually get out of their logs. So I think um, they did a really good job of not not just targeting IT, but also, you know, going after other areas of the business, everything from, you know, the security groups, talking to the development groups. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of workshops uh, with them and, you know, they would go and they would say, well, holy crap, like this is great. We want to bring this data in for threat hunting, but that's going to like increase our Splunk bill by 10x. And then I would say, well, now you know why the workshops are free. But yeah. that was kind of the model is really to get them to be, become dependent on it. Um, and I really think it shows that, you know, the people really need that, that visibility. They need to be able to um, have access to that data, understand what's happening in their environments. And so, um, you know, kudos to Splunk because they really tapped into that and they're able to show people the value. And that's why the tools become so popular. I love using Splunk still. I use it all the time. Yeah. Um, in fact, we're building integration with with Splunk. You know, like there's a lot of things our, our platform can, can't do that Splunk does uh, really well. Um, but now what we're doing is we can bring in the high volume log sources and then we can send those alerts into Splunk. So if that's where they have their security workflow, um, we can go ahead and we can uh, integrate and work really um, hand in hand. And I think that's important is don't try to do rip and replace. Don't don't try to you know say it's one or the other. I think the more you sort of align with the security ecosystem, um, you can actually meet the customer where they're at, um, help solve the customer problems, not necessarily trying to you know get in there and trying to replace a Splunk or Elastic or anything like that. I think it's better to go in and identify what are you trying to accomplish. Um, let's see how we can get these tools to integrate, and maybe we'll save you some money along the way. Yeah, I mean, it really, the pitch makes a lot of sense there when you're like, look, send your absolute crazy volumes of logs to us. We'll do the processing on them. And when there's an alert that's kind of confirmed and contextualized and whatever, then you pump it into the seam for 10 cents, you know, instead of just trying to do all of that work in, in Splunk. It's interesting what you said about Threat Hunt there because uh, uh, I, I, I got a demo of Splunk. I think it was like over 10 years ago, you know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. 
you know, got my first demo of it with someone from Splunk and it was pretty amazing. They were showing um, C2 traffic via a fake flash agent, you know, mm-hmm. um, that they'd managed to to find on a network. So for Threat Hunt, it was really good. But, you know, I kind of feel like that's not really how you do Threat Hunt anymore. You know what I mean? You would much more be using your EDR instrumentation and whatever. So some of those use cases are just like, you know, I'm not saying Splunk isn't useful. I'm just saying like there are things that do that better now. So I guess that's why I'm saying... I'm surprised at how well entrenched they've been able to keep themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think also Splunk was around when people didn't understand their data. They didn't understand the shape of it. They didn't know what fields to look for. Um, And I think even some of the data sources you're bringing in Splunk, that's, that's still true. You kind of use Splunk to, to make sense of, of the data you're ingesting. But I think when it comes to cloud and SaaS applications and custom logs, we have a better understanding of of what's important in in those um, data sets. Um, we used to say, like I, when I was at uh, Splunk and some others, we all, all data security relevant. Yeah, all security log sources might be relevant, but not every field um, is going to be important. So being able to provide the flexibility for organizations to filter out um, some of the noise or some of the data that you don't need, I think that's critically important and can actually save organizations a lot of money. But if your entire business model is just on ingestion alone, um, you know, are you cannibalizing yourself by offering those features? So I think we have to kind of, you know, as vendors, we have to say, you know, what's the right thing for the customer? You know, if we do the right things, then, you know, we're going to uh, make money. We don't need to say you have to ingest everything. Um, if we can apply filters and you can save money, um, then I think that's the best thing for us to do. So of your customers, what percentage of them are using Panther standalone versus using them as a feeder for their existing seam? Um, kind of the, the feeder uh, model is it's fairly new. So we've uh, we just started getting uh, a few uh, customers that were interested in that. Um, and so I would say, you know, just a handful, uh, but it's becoming uh, much more common, uh, particularly, again, for those high volume use cases. Well, I was going to say, I mean, there's just such an obvious business case there, right? Which is that we right. could just save you money off your, you know, outrageous seam bill. Yeah, well, it's uh, we, we're just ramping it up, uh, and it's uh, you're going to hear a lot more about it in the future for sure. But yeah, um, it's still fairly new for us. Yeah. All right. Well, Ken Weston, that was really interesting stuff, man. All the best with it. Uh, sounds great, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Patrick. That was Ken Weston there from Panther, and you can find them at panther.io. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back later today with another episode of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 